Well, today, we come to a passage that mockers and scoffers love to look at, love to point out. Uh, the first four verses, they love to say, see, the Bible's full of myths and ridiculousity. Ridiculosity, that's it. And the latter four verses, they say, see, your God is not omnipotent, all-knowing, and all everything else. So scoffers and mockers love this passage. And unfortunately, good Christians, good people, oftentimes get turned sideways by this passage because we focus on the things that hold your seat don't really matter. We focus on the things that aren't really that germane while missing the point of why this is in the Bible in the first place. And so, without further ado, brothers and sisters, let us look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, in which we read the words of Moses, the Lord's servant, inspired by the Holy Spirit. When man began to in when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, guess what? This is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the living God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage. It is fascinating. Indeed, it's so fascinating that we can be sidetracked seeking to satisfy our curiosity and miss the punch of what you, have our, what you are saying here. Grant that we would hear. Grant that we would repent. Grant that we would hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters. Well, this is a passage that multiple things could be spoken of about. And so... Uh, I, I could preach multiple messages from this. In fact, we're going to look at part of this next week. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not guaranteed next week. 
None of us are. And so, like we do whenever there's a passage that I could preach multiple points from, uh, it's important with the time that I am guaranteed, which is right now, to preach what is the main thing. And the main thing is what we're going to get into. What we're going to talk about next week are those fascinating verses, verses 1 through 4, where people have written much, people have pondered and wondered much, who or what were the sons of God, the daughters of men, who or what were the Nephilim, and it says these, and it says in verse uh, 4, uh, when the sons of daughters, these were the mighty men. Well, that's a Hebrew word, giborim. Is, is that another sub-race of people, or is it just a, a, a term to describe mighty men? I mean, wh what's going on? And, and let me satisfy you immediately and tell you why we're not focusing on it today. Because none of the options that have been offered throughout church history strike at the, or, at the essentials of the faith. There are views we like more than others. There are views that seem more plausible than others. But none of them make one unorthodox. Okay? So because of that, I don't want to get sidetracked in the little bit of time we have because these verses are a remarkable opportunity to have a class on exegetical and theological methodology. So that's what we're going to do next week. It'll be a different kind of sermon. It'll be almost like a, like a class slash lecture. If this isn't like a lecture, I don't know. So next week, come back, and we're going to look at what, what, if anything, does the Bible have to say about these sons of God these daughters of men, these Nephilim, what, what? And that will hopefully scratch your curiosity for you, okay? But for today, we have to ask ourselves, why is this passage even in here? Why? Well, grammatically, it comes at the conclusion of the Toledot, the section that wraps up the genealogy, the, the, the story of Adam and his line. It is the transition between the Toledot about Adam and the Toledot about Noah. So this section in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, is the closing narrative section that concludes everything that was said regarding Cain and Abel, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. This is the closing comment as chapters 4 and 5 detailed the downward spiral of humanity, the spread of sin, how it was a universal phenomenon, how death reigned. We saw that last week, that the, that the footnote at the end of everybody's thing was, or the, punk, the, the period at the end of everybody's sentences, he died, he died. This, then, is the final word on that period. Sin spread. The world was wicked. We in our lives, people in every age, have struggled with the ongoing presence of sin. People in every age, 
I don't care. You could go to you could go to Victoria, England, Victorian England, and they would still talk about the wretchedness and the moral decay of the society. Every culture sees it around them. Believers in every age struggle with it. Indeed, oftentimes, if you are going to be honest, it seems like God is indifferent and aloof and unconcerned about all the wretchedness that goes on in the world. You don't have to say it. We're at church. And, you know, but you know you feel it. In fact, multiple times in Scripture, we see the complaint aired that the wicked flourish. I think it reaches its, its, uh, its, its, its peak, though, when, when the prophet Malachi, in chapter 3 of his book, is, is putting into word the complaint of so many. When he writes their words, it is vain, or it is futile to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? We call the arrogant blessed, and evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. That's the words of the prophet saying the words of the people. Doesn't it seem that way sometimes? That the wicked go on and on, they prosper, they flourish, they go on and on and on. Is that really, really how it is? Is God really indifferent to sin? Now, we're Christians, we know the answer. No, he's not. But, but how does God respond personally to sin? Is God just this impartial, unfeeling being who just guilty, innocent, guilty, innocent? Or is God a relational creator who is deeply bothered by the offenses of his creation? Of his wayward subjects who now live in open rebellion against him. So this passage, brothers and sisters, is in the Bible as the prelude to the flood. It is there to remind us of the gravity of sin, of God's response to it, and our only hope to escape it. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, the first point from this passage is I, I want you to understand God is personally grieved by wickedness. That's the first point. God is personally grieved by wickedness. Now, you have to really take that in when bad stuff has happened to you. Wretched stuff happens to people all the time, and they are devastated. In fact, open theism, this belief that God doesn't really know the future, was born of a pastor getting tired of having to tell people in their, in, in their time of crisis that God was there, but he just didn't do anything. 
It, it seemed to him to be so much more pastoral to be able to say, God is just as shocked as you are. That's the wrong response. But the reality is this. Each of you have suffered wrongs. Each of you have been subject to a, a teacher, a professor, a, a family member, a, a, a co-worker, a boss, a customer, a, the government, having done you wrong. Each of you, each of us. And it's not just something that we just need to get over. Brothers and sisters, wickedness that happens to us, wickedness that is perpetrated by us, it bothers God. It upsets him. Verse 5 underscores the state of affairs for human hearts, and, and, and it's grim. It explains why sin never goes away. Look, look what it says in verses, in verses 5 to 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This passage alone could be used as the proof text for total depravity. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. That's how intense it was. It filled and covered the earth. Everywhere that man was, there was wickedness. You see in these verses, the sincerity. Sometimes people act up just to try to be impressed to people, you know, to, to show off, to bluff. No, no, no. The, every intention of the thoughts of his heart. The, so his sincere intentions of what he was doing were only evil all the time. The totality, every, every, every. It's used multiple times to convey the totality of what is going on here. Every intention, every thought. And then constancy. Only evil all the time time and this world then is filled with the fruits of this state of affairs we see it in our homes we see it in our hearts we see it in our church we see it in the world around us and how does God respond to this well in three times three times in verses 6 through 7 we are presented with the language of divine lament. He says the Lord was sorry that he had made man. The King James, the old venerable King James, actually gets it a little more precise in this case. It said the Lord repented. He's sorry he made man. It grieved him to his heart what he saw and then he says again I'm going to blot out everything because I regret I am sorry I repent of having made them wow now this passage right here clearly underscores God's what we would call emotional response 
to seeing the wretchedness that had befallen his once pristine creation. But what do we make of these expressions? Well, they're anthropomorphic for sure. Okay, God doesn't have a heart to be grieved. Okay, anytime you see language about God that presents him in in human-like terms, it's an anthropomorphism. Okay, he doesn't have a body, so he's not walking in the cool of the day. It's, It's presented to us because we exist in this world this way, so we need to be able to understand God in a certain way. So it's communicating to us in human terms some sort of truth that corresponds within the divine person. But what I want you to see is far from being dispassionate in the sense of not caring, he cares tremendously. These verses touch on the doctrine of impassibility. In our Confession of Faith, chapter 2, but point 1, it says, There is only one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Now, unfortunately, some people have taken impassibility to such an extreme that God is essentially a, he, he, when they describe it, it sounds like a cosmic computer program that hit run on the program and is just, just going, through the, going through the ones and zeros until the end. Um, no. We are told multiple times, and in fact, a, a, the basis of our hope is that God does not change. But his, when we speak of God being without passion, you know what passions are? Passions are the overwhelming emotional response to something that come up spontaneously that override our reason, our judgment, our sense of, uh, of equilibrium, and we, they force an action without thought. You've heard of a crime of passion. It's something that happens. A person sees something that is just so, oh, and they just act. God never just has an emotional eruption. Nothing ever happens that makes God just lose his cool so that way in a moment he just spazzes out. Similarly, he is sovereign. So nothing ever happens that forces a state of affairs upon God so that he feels an emotion other than what he has sovereignly decreed would happen. But, be that as it may, when God has decreed and that thing in history does come to pass, God is a personal being. And that is good news for you, beloved child of God. What happens to you matters to him tremendously. You're going to face even more trouble, even more trials than you've faced thus far. The world is only growing darker. And every every amount of affliction and suffering and pain and hardship that you go through, the Lord is storing up 
we read that that great day is coming. When all the storing up stops being stored, we find in Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, that, that ultimately the day comes in which all the peoples of the world, all those who have refused to worship the Lamb, they're in terror. And they run and they plead for the mountains and the rocks and the hills to fall upon them to hide us. Hide us from he who sits on the throne and the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That day comes where he comes to vindicate his name and to vindicate his people. So take heart. Wickedness grieves the Lord. And when he sees it, he will indeed store up the wrath. Because the second point is that judgment is a certainty. We see this in verse 3. When Adam, oh, wrong, wrong chapter. Uh, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Okay, some take this to mean that God, God is putting a hard cap on human life. Too many people live way beyond that for that to really seriously be the case. If you look at the timeline, it pretty much lines up to how long it took till the flood happened. God is starting the countdown timer to when he will destroy the world. Now, is this just an anomaly? Is this just something that God arbitrarily decided to do? Uh, too bad, I'm going to start over. N no, you have to understand, brothers and sisters, part of, part of what drives the Christian mission in this world is that judgment is the inevitable outcome of what happens when sin and rebellion encounter a holy and righteous God. For God cannot let wickedness go unpunished without impugning his holiness and his justice. And so Paul, speaking in the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, he draws it home. He summarizes his sermon after, after pointing out the, the futility and the hypocrisy, the, the, the shredded logic of their idolatry, he says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And this, he has, of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, hard stop. Take a moment and reflect on that. Usually we talk about the resurrection of Jesus as being proof positive that God has accepted his sacrifice on our behalf, and that is true. But Paul right here says that the resurrection of Jesus also is proof positive of the certainty of coming judgment. It is a testimony to the world of the certainty of coming judgment. 
And so this drives the Christian mission. That today is the day of repentance, but there is a day that has been set. It's not fluid. It's not shifting. It's not changing. It is set. And come what may, that day remains unchanged. And at that day, there will be no more Christian mission. And so while it is light, we do our work. And we plead, repent. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from your sins. Receive forgiveness. Receive amnesty. Become a child of God rather than an enemy. Do it. Do it now because we don't know when that day will come. Indeed, as we will see in a few weeks, neither did the people there. They got, <clears throat> they weren't told 120 years. And then the end is going to hit you. Moses is writing that back in millennia after it had happened. They were living, giving in marriage and having babies and da di da di da And then the flood happened. It came upon them. The judgment of God is a certainty in the face of human sin. So it drives Christian mission, but it also drives Christian prayers in times of suffering. Let's be real. We see the absolute chaos that we perceive going on in the culture and in the world around us. I'm here to tell you it is okay to pray with the Apostle John Come, Lord Jesus, come. Only a madman would want such confusion to go on indefinitely. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. When your heart is heavy laden, when your heart is hurting, and the, and the, and the wickedness and the ravings of madmen pile up, we pray, oh, Lord, vindicate your name, vindicate your people. And let righteousness reign on the earth. But the third point is this. Our only hope is divine grace. When we read the state of the human heart in verse 5, I'm not talking about the people out there. I'm talking about myself. And I'm talking about you. I'm talking about every single one of us. Our hearts are wretched and wicked even Paul, on his best of days, called himself a wretched man. Our only hope when we face a righteous and holy God is grace. Something that we do not deserve. And, and, and you see the hint of it right here in verse 8. God has just gone on and, and, and just superfluously poured out how, how upset, how grieved he is. And his plan is to terminate basically all life on the planet. But then verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, as we're going to see in a few chapters, Noah's not sinless. He's, he's not perfect. So what's the basis of him finding favor if he's not perfect? Grace. 
God's unmerited favor poured out on unworthy sinners. And brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in Christ alone, you can have profound confidence that you are the recipient and the beneficiary of divine grace. Christ has come that you might indeed have life abundantly, that you might be freed from the fear and expectation of judgment, that you might be freed from the shame and the power of sin. This chapter shows us that the flood, in a very real sense, was the inevitable outcome of a holy God existing in the same universe as sin. It shows that the human heart, apart from grace, is only one of death. And it shows that in the world of darkness, only God's grace provides a ray of hope. Run to it. Run to that ray of hope. Cling to it. Oh, friend, if you are visiting here and you are not calling on the name of the Lord Jesus, if you don't even know what that means, if you don't know what it means to trust in the Lord and to repent, then don't leave here without talking to me after the service. Today is the day of salvation. He extends his arms to you. Will you perish? Or will you find life and freedom? So, this passage is here as a prelude to the flood. Next week, we will see how this passage provides an exegetical and theological study for our methodology for doing this. Let's pray.